Good morning, everyone. Well, that was welcoming. Thank you. If you're here visiting, I'm sorry you have to listen to me instead of Pastor Dustin. He's our, he's our uh, pastor that we love, and he and his wife and children and several others are traveling down in Mexico, and they're building a house for a family that's never had a home. They are, uh, they are working with uh, an orphanage. Uh, they're going to be ministering on the streets. Uh, this will be my son. My son's on that trip, and my grandson. It'll be my son's ninth time down to Mexico to do that, and uh, it's just a wonderful outreach and ministry. But if you're here visiting, uh, thank you for being with us this morning, and for all of you that are regular attenders and online, God bless you. Somebody said to me this morning when they heard I was speaking, they said, well, Pastor Jeff, you're more of a teacher than you are a preacher, and that's true. I am more of a teacher than I am a preacher, so uh, I am going to do some teaching this morning out of the scriptures. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I feel led to say this to you before I start, and I say this with all sincerity and honesty. I believe that God sent me here for you today. I believe that uh, there are one of you or several sums of you, to coin a word, that need to hear this message from God out of Acts chapter 10 and 11. So um, let me begin by saying this. It is quite rare in Scripture when the same story appears twice. It is very rare, perhaps unique, because I couldn't think of another time that it happened, when the same story appears back-to-back, chapter-next-to-chapter. But that is what happens in where we're going to be looking this morning in Acts chapter 10 and 11. It is the same story repeated twice. Now, let me also say this. I heard this the first time when I was 20 years old. It's a long time ago. You can tell, can't you? 20 years ago, Eugene, Oregon, 1966, sitting in a chapel service at Bible College, and they introduced to us a preacher from Wales. He had a strong British accent. I don't remember his name. I can see his face just like I can see your face. I mean, it's so clear in my mind. And he preached out of Acts chapter 10 and 11 because he wanted to teach us as young people who had a heart after God that wanted to walk with God and serve God. He wanted to teach us, and here's the theme, how to hear the voice of the Lord. How do you hear the voice of the Lord? How do you know when it's really God speaking to you, when it's not an impression or a thought or the bad pizza the night before or the, or the uh, just whatever? How do you know when God is really speaking to you? Today, I am going to use an expository format, which I hardly ever do. Usually, I preach topically, which is a theme or a topic, and then one, two, three points. You know, they teach you that in homiletics class or even at Wichita State University, I had a speech class. They said the very same thing. You know, you announce your topic, you give your introduction, you have your three main points, and then you conclude. Expository preaching is where you literally go verse by verse by verse by verse through the passages of Scripture and you just unpack it as God speaks to you from the heart of the Word. So that's what I'm going to do this morning. Acts chapter 10 and 11 is an amazing story about Peter, the big fisherman, who became a disciple and eventually an apostle of the Lord. And uh, 
He was called upon by God to be an ambassador to take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to the Gentiles who at this point in time had never heard it. And as a matter of fact, so far the church was thinking it was against the law, not the civil law, not the Roman law. It was against the law to do it. And God, the whole struggle of Acts 10 and 11 is Peter trying to come to the place where he can hear God's voice and be sure that he's supposed to take the gospel to the Gentiles and break the Jewish law. Now, Acts 10 and 11, if you like uh, suspense and drama, and I wouldn't say action adventure, but uh, this, you know, in, in the genre of movies, we got a lot of drama, a lot of suspense here. You're going to hear, you're going to see visions, not digital 3D kind of visions, but we're talking about real live visions in Technicolor. Peter saw visions. Cornelius saw visions. Um, we're going to be introduced to angels. We are going to uh, come across some things like voices from heaven, like the Holy Spirit revealing things in advance that are unknowable, but he makes you know them in advance. It's like seeing around the corner before you turn the corner or seeing over the horizon before you get over the horizon. It's, it's the Holy Spirit revealing unknowable truths, facts, information, before they're known. Uh, you're going to see the heavens opened as we go through these passages of Scripture. You're going to see the Holy Spirit poured out. Imagine a pitcher or a jar, not, not sprinkling showers of rain. Imagine a pitcher of water poured over your head. You're going to see the Holy Spirit poured out. And also, you're going to see uh, the baptism of the Spirit and speaking in other languages that they, they didn't know. So let's dive in, as Pastor Dustin would say, he, always, he says, let's dive in. So let's dive in, shall we? We're going to begin actually with some maps, uh, because I want you to have a look at the Mediterranean world at the time uh, that this takes place. Um, the Mediterranean Sea is right there in the center. If you're familiar with this part of the world, that's Africa to the south. All of this down to the south is Africa. Up to the, this is Israel right over here. This is Asia Minor. And then you go over to Europe. You can see Italy and the boot of Italy and Sicily down there. This is where uh, the ancient world, ancient world took place. And this is where the cities are that we're going to be reading about. Um, I want to go to a map that now closes in on Israel, which is the far eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. And I want you to notice specifically Caesarea up to the northwest. You see it way up there with the star. Thank you, Donald, for the wonderful slides you've made. Caesarea up there and um, 63 kilometers or 39 miles south of that, you'll see Joppa, which we'll come to later. Uh, so my wife and I had the privilege in 2010... No, 11. 2011, we had the privilege, we were invited as guests to go to Israel by the government of Israel. And if you fly into Israel, you will land in Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv is the big modern city, which is, you saw on the map, Joppa. Tel Aviv is 
the metroplex, if you will, and Joppa's just a suburb right on the south of it. It'd be like Tacoma's the metroplex and Puyallup's right next to it. So this is Tel Aviv, and you can see the Mediterranean Sea right over the top of her head, and that's the big city. If you fly to Israel, that's where you're going to go. Now, let's go to the next slide, because that's going to see, see her standing in front of Caesarea. We're actually at Caesarea, and you can see behind her that it is also a port city. It's on the Mediterranean Sea. And um, what you're looking at there, uh, Caesarea was built in 10 B.C., 10 years before Christ was born, Caesarea was built. It was built by Herod the Great, and Herod the Great built Caesarea uh, and named it after Augustus Caesar. And so that's where it got its name. If you look at those pictures, that is a picture of the Hippodrome. Uh, in Latin, it means circus. It's a major stadium. Uh, Don, you can even go to the next one, I think. And do you see where they stabled the horses? This, is, this thing was three football fields long and very narrow, and they would have chariot races there. Gladiators would fight. Uh, eventually, after Christ came and the message of the gospel got out, in this actual spot where we were standing, and you can see, oh, but go back to that one, yeah. As, yeah, that one right there. Do you see the mosaic floor over there and this right here? That was uncovered as they kept digging layers down, and when the tide goes up, it covers that. It washes over that, and when the tide goes out, it's gone. But um, that uh, stadium, if we're going to call it that, was where a number of Christians lost their lives, either put in there with wild beasts or forced to fight as gladiators. So uh, that's the town of Caesarea. So let's go to Acts chapter 10, verse 1. If you have your Bible, I hope you'll follow along. Otherwise, it'll be on your screen. If you're at home, run and, and grab a Bible and get it in front of you, because here we go. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. I'm going to just read uh, seven verses, and then we'll go back. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing and have generously uh, have given, gave generously to those in need and prayer, uh, prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened, and he sent them to Joppa. So if you, if you imagine a drama production, and it has four acts, this is act one. And the stage is set. We're in Caesarea. He's in his house. He's God-fearing. In fact, if you look at verse 7, verse 22, verse 24, there's several verses there that tell us more and more information about Cornelius. And so let me just share what comes out through the course of the story. We know he's a centurion. That means he commanded 100 men. Uh, he was a non-commissioned military officer from Italy. He was married. He had a family. He was devoted to God. He gave money to the poor. He was charitable. He had servants, so he was a man of means. He had at least two servants. We know that because he sent them uh, away. 
He was righteous. Some translations say just. He was respected by the Jewish nation. He had a lot of relatives and friends because he calls them all together. And then he has this visitor, the second actor in the, in the play. He has this visitor, an angel. He's called an angel of God. That's important to know. You thought, oh, I thought all angels are of God. Well, a third of the angels fell, and there are fallen angels that are demon spirits. And so uh, this is an angel of God. This is a good angel. This is an angel that came to, to be a messenger from God. He could be seen. He appeared. He spoke to humans. If you go farther into the story, it says he had shining clothes on. Now, the stereotypical angel that we think of, of course, is blonde hair and a gal with wings floating in the air. That's not what we're seeing right here. So what is an angel? Are there really angels? What is an angel? I'm just going to give you three verses real quickly. Hebrews 1.14, are they not ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Angels are ministering spirits sent to those of us who inherit salvation. Psalm 103, verse 20, his angels are his mighty ones that do his bidding. So he sends them as messengers, as emissaries, ambassadors. Psalm 91, verse 11, he will command his angels to guard you in all your ways. That's where we get the whole idea of a guardian angel. He will command his angels to guard you, to protect you in all your ways. Just so you know, there are 66 books in the Bible. 34 of them refer to angels. 34 of them. Angels are involved with Mary, with Elizabeth, with Joseph, the whole Christmas story, the shepherds. I mean, there's angels everywhere all the time. Um, my favorite, have, has anybody here ever heard of the little devotional book called Guidepost? For years and years and years, I see a few heads shaking. Uh, they publish once in a while their most classic stories that, they, that through 50, 60, 70 years, however long it's been published, and recently, they published one that their most classic Christmas stories. And one of those stories was about a man and a woman, probably about our age, sweetheart. We're in our mid-70s. But it was an older couple taking a walk through the forest. And as they walked down the road, they looked to the left. And above ground was a group of angels talking and interacting. It was so startling and so shocking to them that neither one said anything to the other. They just kept walking. And when they got home, after the awkward silence and all that stuff, one said, did you see anything on our walk that was unusual today? And the other one said, yeah, maybe so. And of course, you know the rest of the story. They finally started communicating. They both separately saw the identical thing. It's a beautiful story, it's just, just one story of many. I think it's also interesting in this passage that Cornelius' gifts to the poor and his prayers were memorialized before God. So you go to church and they take an offering, or you give to the poor, or you help the disabled, or whatever your charitable, philanthropic heart says to do. But did it ever occur to you that that is being memorialized by God? Actually, you can go to the book of Revelation, and it talks about golden censers, an angel that has a golden censer before the throne of God. And in that golden censer are, guess what? The prayers of the saints. They are saved there. 
they are saved there. I, I just think it's fascinating that it says they are memorialized before. And, and then I also like the whole idea, and this is one of my favorite things about God. I love the fact that God makes the unknowable knowable before you can know it. Does that make sense to you? God makes the unknowable knowable before it even happens sometimes. And that's what you have happening here, advanced knowledge, the revelation, the self-disclosure of God. God discloses information or truth or facts that otherwise would not be knowable. Prophets, for example, if you look at the scholar uh, Alfred Edersheim, he's identified 456 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled by Jesus. And they were spoken by men and written down before they ever happened. Zacharias says 30 pieces of silver. How could he know that? How could he possibly know 30 pieces of silver that Judas would give to, you know, it's impossible. And there's so many scriptures like that. Um, uh, the book of Micah, but thou Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth he that it's, it's a prophet. It's a messianic prophet see about Jesus. And it tells where he will be born before he's ever conceived in the womb by the Holy Spirit and Mary. He'll be born in Bethlehem. Just two examples of prophecy, advanced knowledge, dreams, visions, angels, gifts of the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12. We as believers in the body of Christ have this wonderful opportunity to employ the 1 Corinthians 12 gifts of the Spirit, the nine gifts of the Spirit, which minister to the rest of the body. And two of those gifts are the word of knowledge and the word of wisdom. The word of knowledge is so that uh, when God reveals to a person information that is either present or past, they can go disclose it to somebody, and they say, how do you know? Well, the Holy Spirit told me. The Holy Spirit told me. Oh, I could tell you so many stories about that happening. I, there's just no time this morning. I'm rushing through this because we got a lot of verses to go through, but... But it happens. The word of wisdom is not, the word of knowledge is for present or past information. The word of wisdom is about future assignment and future things. And right here we have the Holy Spirit giving both at the same time. Anyway, let's, let's keep moving for this. So the third primary person is introduced in verse 6. That's Peter, and you know about Peter. Um, and we learn about Cornelius. And so anyway, it's a 39-mile walk, about 13 hours at 3 miles an hour. So you think about these three folks from Cornelius' house being dispatched. They're going to walk about three miles an hour. It's going to take them 13 hours to get there. Now let's move on to Act 2. Act 2 is Peter's vision. As the story unfolds like a drama in separate acts, it begins. And uh, I'm not sure whether we'll... I don't think I'm going to read through it and take the time to do that. But let's just start in verse 9. In verse 9 it says, Now about noon... It's too bad we're using a, a new translation. Actually, in the authorized version and the older translations, they all said um, the sixth hour of the day. See, the Jewish day starts at 6. Our day starts at 12. At midnight, 12.01, it's the first minute of the new morning, the new day. But to in the Jewish culture, and still today, uh, it starts at 6 o'clock in the evening, and so, no, I'm sorry, 6 o'clock in the morning. And so the sixth hour of the day would be noon. The ninth hour of the day would be 3 o'clock. And both of those phrases are used throughout here. So about noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter goes up to the rooftop to pray. 
He becomes hungry in the original language. That word hungry is ravenous. He probably was fasting. We don't know that for a fact, but he probably was fasting. And he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. The original Greek word there is ecstasis. We get our word ecstasy from it. It means uh, bewilderment, out of his mind. It doesn't mean like out of your mind crazy. And it doesn't mean like, uh, let's see, today it's fentanyl. Is that what it is? Uh, When I grew up, uh, as a teen, it was LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide 25. I'm probably the only one in the world that knows that, but that's what LSD stood for. And, and people would hallucinate, you know. They'd get all these hallucinations and see weird stuff. And I did a, I did, I did a speech one time at Wichita State University on, uh, on glue sniffing. And people would sniff glue and they would hallucinate and they would thought they could fly and they literally walk off buildings and try to fly and fall to their fall to their death so we're not talking about that we're talking about the holy spirit giving an actual vision an ecstasy a, a trance from god to him and uh, says he saw heaven opened if you're not familiar with that phrase you should be it appears all through the new testament the heavens opened Uh, Are you familiar with any of them? The heavens opened. Let's see if I can find in my notes where I have that. The heavens opened in Luke 3 when Jesus was baptized in the Spirit. The heavens opened. In Acts 7 when Stephen was martyred, just as he was dying, the heavens opened. He saw the glory of God and the the presence of God came down to him. In John... uh, as the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, chapter 19, he's on the Isle of Patmos, banished there by the Roman government, and it says the heavens were open. Have you ever experienced open heavens before? Think about that for just a minute. Some of you I see head shaking saying no, and others of you maybe, perhaps. Um, you should expect that. You should want that. You should desire that. There are occasions for every believer when, by the grace of God, the veil is peeled back from the earthlies and you're transported in your spirit into the heavenlies. Now, this is biblical. Doesn't Paul say in the book of Ephesians, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places? And doesn't Paul say to the Philippian believers in chapter 3, about verse 20, 21, he said, we're citizens of heaven. We are citizens. We're actually strangers and foreigners. Once you become a Christian and fall in love with Jesus and your life is changed like I know it has to be because 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says your life has to be changed. You're a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. You then become a stranger and a foreigner in this world. And there are times in prayer or in worship or, or in special conference meetings or conventions when God begins to move and the mantle of his, uh, a cloud of his glory just falls and the heavens are opened and you move into a whole different dimension in the spirit. It happens in your, in your inner being. And anyway, so this sheet is let down, this image is let down and uh, it's filled with quadrupeds, four-footed beasts, it's filled with reptiles, it's filled with birds, And Peter's on his knees praying. He's hungry. The heavens are open. And the voice, an angel appears to him, and the voice says, Rise, Peter, slay and eat. Kill these things and eat them. And Peter says, No, I can't do that because these things are common and they're unclean. 
Now, Peter's basically speaking from, from Old Testament scripture that has taught him, you know, there are certain foods you don't eat that aren't clean. This thing happened three times. That's important. Three is a number of completeness and God's approval. Stop and think about the threes you know of in scripture. The Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The tabernacle, the temple, the outer court. The sanctuary, also called the holy place. And then the holy of holies in the inner court. Oh, there's so many of them. Jesus, three days, three nights in the belly, you know, crucified and raised on the third day. Number three in scripture stands for completeness and God's approval. Paul says, now abides faith, hope, and love, these three. The greatest of these is love. So it happened to Peter three times. And then in verse, I want to go down to verse 17 and verse 19, the first parts of both of those verses. It says, one of them begins in verse 17, and it says, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision. So Peter's wondering about the meaning of the vision. Verse 19 begins, while Peter was still thinking about the vision. Now, this thing is happening. It's an interaction between heaven and Peter, between the angel and Peter. And he's having an experience with God. He knows God is speaking to him, but he doesn't really know what it means. He doesn't know why it's happening. It's like there's this exhilarating time that, that happens when you know God's speaking to you, when you, you know that you're in a zone with God, that something, that reminds me of Michael Jordan. I remember him playing for the Chicago Bulls, and I don't have any idea who they were playing, but he would throw the ball up. It didn't matter if he was off balance. It didn't matter how far out he was, way past the three-point line or off to the side. He would throw the ball up, and it would go through the net, and it happened over and over and over and over and over, and finally he turned at the camera, and everybody in America saw it. He just looked at it like this, and afterwards they interviewed him. He said, I don't know. I was just in a zone. Every time I threw the ball up, it went through the net. You know, that's what's going on here. Peter's having this encounter with God. It's exhilarating. It's shocking. It's stunning. He's being asked to do something that's unlawful and illegal for him, basically, and and, but he doesn't know what it means yet, and that's what we're getting here. When you're trying to hear the voice of God, things are going to be going on in your life, and you'll know God is about. God is afoot. God is working with you, but you're not sure what it means yet. You're still thinking. You're still wondering, what is God saying to me? What is God saying to me? And verse 19, verse 20, and the Spirit said to Peter, 19 and 20, uh, let's read it. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, th three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the only one, uh, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And the men replied, we have come from Cornelius, the centurion, he's a righteous and God-fearing man who's respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to... The... And so anyway, then Peter invited them into the house to be guests with him. Oh, there's so much to talk about here. I always thought it was awkward, by the way, that Peter invited them to be guests in the house of Simon the Tanner. Does that seem strange to you? It must have been a cultural thing. But Peter is a guest in, this, in the house of Simon the Tanner. He doesn't own that house. And these three strangers show up, and Peter invites them to be a guest. So it's just an awkward moment in Scripture, and I'm not sure why that was. 
And um, so Peter takes with him these brothers. If you'll, we'll keep moving down now. Peter's at, uh, headed to Cornelius' house. And the next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up, stand up. He said, I am only a man myself. I'm only a man myself. Well, really, Peter was a celebrity. Not in his own eyes. But stop and think about it. This is the guy that walked on water. Uh huh. This is the guy that in Acts chapter 3 was going with John into the temple at the time of prayer, and there was a beggar that had been disabled from birth that was brought to the temple gate every single day to beg for money from the people that were going into the temple. And Peter stops and looks at him and he says, hey, silver and gold I don't have, but what I do have I give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, you rise up and walk. And it says he went walking, leaping, and praising God. So Peter walks on water. He heals the guy that's been crippled since birth. Peter's the guy that was in prison, you know, that, that in the middle of the night, the chains just fall off. And he walks past all these guards and he just... Peter really is a celebrity. He could have been listening to his own publicity, couldn't he? We see way too much of that in the Christian world. I grew up in the 70s when the two Jimmies fell. And we won't go back and rehearse that story, but we have, through the decades, seen a lot of men and women of God, authentic, with a calling, with fruit in their life, that fall and disgrace the church of Jesus Christ and ruin the name of Jesus in the public sector. And they would never say, oh, I'm only a man. But that's what Peter said, this, this celebrity, this guy that's known throughout the city. He says, I'm just a man. Let's never forget that. God can use you. God should use you. But always remember, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If I say I have no sin, I deceive myself and the truth is not in me. But if I confess my sin... He's faithful and just to forgive me for my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. God help us if we ever think we amount to something. And, and see, there's the flip side of that coin is we do. <laughs> We're sons and daughters of the living God. Jesus is our elder brother. We are heirs of the kingdom. The Bible says we will rule and reign with him in the dispensations to come. I mean... I mean, it's just, it's, that's the way it is. And then you get down to verse 28. I'm going to jump down to verse 28. Verse 27, talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. Uh, Lindsay opened the service this morning by saying, well, there's not many of us here because a bunch are in Mexico. I don't know what a large gathering of people was in the first century 
right after Jesus died, but I'm guessing it wasn't a whole lot of people. But somehow Cornelius had friends and relatives. And isn't it cool? Isn't it cool that they, they didn't have Pony Express, they didn't have um, telegraph, they didn't have telephones, they didn't have email, they didn't have texting, and they didn't even use a runner like in the ancient days. That's the way you communicated from city to city was send a runner out. They didn't have any of that stuff. But what he had, what Cornelius had was the Holy Spirit that said, I've, I've dispatched three guys and I hope they come. And so he calls family and relatives together and they're right there together waiting, waiting. And, and what does he say? And talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. And he said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me. Now, you notice I haven't said a lot yet about how to hear the voice of God. And that's because when we get to chapter 11, and I'm going to finish by 11.15. I've targeted the people upstairs know I'm going to quit at 11.15. But see, the reality is, in 11, Peter gets in trouble for this very thing. It's against the law for him to even visit, to even be with Gentiles. And he does it, and he has to defend himself in chapter 11. He gets called on the carpet and has to go to Jerusalem in front of the leaders of the church and defend himself, and he rehearses the whole issue again, although abbreviated and summarized. And I'm going to give you five points out of chapter 11 about how Peter heard the voice of the Lord. But right now, he says, God has shown me. This is the turning point. Um, God, God talks. God speaks. God shows us things. That should be normative in your Christian experience. That shouldn't be a strange thing to you. Now, primarily from his word, of course. But woe is me if the only way God speaks is through his word. I mean, after all, Psalm 19 begins and say, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night shows knowledge. And there is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all, well, and so it goes. So we know creation itself speaks to us of God. But the body of Christ speaks to one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and following. All these gifts of the Spirit through you speaking to others. Maybe a dream, maybe a vision. Uh, who knows how God would speak? But So anyway, Peter starts and he says in verse 36, he says, you know the message. Verse 37, he says, you know what has happened. I thought it was interesting that Peter didn't give any background. Apparently, everybody knew. Christians and non-Christians, Gentiles, Jews, everybody knew. Everybody knew what was going on in the area. God was moving. You know, I'm a student of revival. I've read about the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening, uh, the Latter Rain Revival, the Azusa Street outpouring of the Spirit. I know the history. I know the people. I'm a student of revival. I've been praying for 50 years for another move of God, for a spiritual awakening, for a revival to sweep across our nation. And I can tell you from the bottom of my heart that when Peter stood up to these strangers and people that weren't Christians, relatives and friends of Cornelius, I can tell you that he didn't have to tell them what was going on. They knew. 
That's what he's saying right there. He's saying, you already know. You've already heard what God's about and what's going on. And so Cornelius says in verse 33 right there, he says, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you. Don't you wish that's how we'd feel when we come together in church? Don't you wish when we come together in church that we could say in unison, we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us? Well, anyway, as, verse 34, as Peter began to speak, I now realize how true that God does not show favoritism. God is not a respecter of persons. To Peter, that meant Jew and Gentile. To you and I today in 2023, that means God's not a respecter of persons, rich or poor, educated or uneducated, black or white or Latino or Asian, high or low. God's not a respecter of persons. God doesn't have favorites. He loves you just as much as he loves, as he loved, past tense, Billy Graham. Some people have a hard time believing that. That's not so. God loves you and died on the cross for you every bit as much as he did and loved and died for Billy Graham, just to use him as an example. So, for 34 to 38, the Holy Spirit is poured out on the Gentiles. And I'm going to go through this really quickly. But um, in verse 36 and 37, where I said, you know, everybody knows what's going on. It's important to me that you know that Jesus' life and ministry created such a stir in Palestine that everyone knew about him and the message he preached. Now, that's my prayer for Celebration Church and for every church. All 350,000 Christian churches in the United States of America, that the communities, there'll be such a stir, such a move of God that they'll all know that God is about. Now, but I have, I have this question that's really important, very important for you. Jesus of Nazareth, and that's how verse 38 begins. Verse 38 is a very famous verse in, in, to Bible students, to scholars. Verse 38 is a sermon in itself. It, it says this, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power and how he went around doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. I have a question for you. Nothing happened in Nazareth that we're aware of when Jesus was 25 or when he was 26, or when he was 27, or when he was 28, or when he was 29. Did anything happen in Nazareth that you have heard about or that anybody's ever talked about when he was 29 and a half years old? Did anything happen? We don't know. There's no, no record. Nothing's going on. Jesus is a carpenter's son. We know from a boy of 12 that he's spending time with God and learning the ways of God. But there's no stir in Nazareth. Until he th turns 30, and he steps out into ministry. And what is the first thing that happens to him? He goes to the synagogue. He gets Isaiah 61, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. He goes to the water. He's baptized, 
and the heavens open and the dove descends and he's baptized in the Holy Spirit. The power of God is released and all of a sudden there's this stir in Nazareth that you can't believe and it's all driven, it's all driven by the baptism of the Holy Spirit as it falls upon him. You'll notice that in Peter's message, he doesn't leave out the resurrection. Nowhere in the preaching of the New Testament, nowhere is the resurrection omitted. And that's because there's been a lot of prophets and a lot of good godly men and women that have thought themselves to be gods or thought themselves to be leaders of religion. And they've all died for good causes. But only one, only one has risen from the dead. Only one has defeated death, hell, and the grave. And that's what makes Jesus Christ. And that's what makes Christianity unique. And yes, I'll use the word exclusive which the world hates, and probably some of you are very uncomfortable with that. I can't tell you how many times I've shared Christ with people, and yeah, but there's a lot of ways to God. No, there are not a lot of ways to God. John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Except, John 3, except you be born again, you shall not see the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ defeated death, hell, and the grave. He rose from the dead. He proved that he was the only truly begotten son of God. And in many years, have you seen the Passion of the Christ? Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ. Um, he had that movie completed except for the very end of it. And he called on Christian leaders around the country to come to Pasadena, L.A. area, and to meet with him to see a... a uh, review of the entire movie, and then have us evaluate it. And I was able to go to that. I was invited to be there, and I took my son Andrew with me. And when we were there, in fact, I brought with me a picture. This is my son Andrew standing with Mel Gibson down in Pasadena. And we were down there, and the result of our evaluation was, was Mel, um, you left out the resurrection. And that's because in his Catholic tradition, as passionate as he was about the cross, and he did a wonderful job portraying the cross, he left out the resurrection completely. And so he tacked on 30 seconds to the end of it, and that was the resurrection in the last 30 seconds. Uh, when I was in L.A. in 2020, the very February, the very month that COVID broke out, um, a friend of his that was... We were told that he was going to produce a second movie about the resurrection of Jesus, and uh, they were starting to put the money together. And then, of course, COVID hit and it shut it all down. But they actually gave me a they actually gave me a hat while I was there as part of their marketing. Can you see what the hat says? It says the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That hat was given to me because their plan was to do another work about the resurrection. Don't ever leave the resurrection of Jesus Christ out of your testimony. Now, I have uh, seven or eight minutes to give you my five points on how to hear the voice of God. Uh, we're not going to take the time to read all of uh, Acts chapter 11, but here it goes, as fast as I can give it to you. Verse 5 of Acts chapter 11, Peter says, I was in the city of Joppa praying. I was in the city of Joppa praying. It all begins with prayer. You want to hear God's voice? You have to be a person of prayer. It's time we quit calling prayer the spare tire in the trunk and start calling it the steering wheel. The greatest influence you'll ever have in the kingdom of God is in prayer. 
And Billy Graham said, nobody ever uses a man or a woman in the work of God unless they are a person of prayer. It's just that simple. Pray without ceasing. Pray and never give up as Jesus taught us. Men ought always to pray and never, never to faint. Prayer is the well. It's not gritting your, Richard Foster says, prayer isn't gritting your teeth. It's falling in love with God, with Jesus. That's what prayer is. It's falling in love. It's intimacy with God. It's communion and union with God. It's spending time with your lover. It's, it's the welcoming presence of God. It's the embrace of God. I, I don't get discouraged. I know you get bored. I know you, get, you run out of things to say. I know you're too busy. If you want to hear God's voice, it begins in prayer. Number two, verse seven, I heard a word. I heard a word. So Peter has to make this huge decision. If you have a decision to make in your life, whatever it might be, about a relationship, about marriage, about a career, about a job, about buying a house, all those big decisions that, you know, our life is the product of thousands of decisions. Thousands of decisions, little ones and big ones, and some of them are really huge. What am I going to do when I retire? How does God want to use me? Does God want to use me? God wants to speak. God wants to answer those prayers. And Peter says, I heard a word. I know his voice might seem unfamiliar to you, I have been asked many times, what's the voice of God sound like? And I always answer Revelation 1. His voice is like the sound of many waters. If you're standing by the Niagara, it thunders. If you're by a little brook, it's rippling. If you're out in the rain, his voice is like pitter-patter, pitter-patter, pitter-patter. On a moonlit night, if you're looking at a steel lake and there's no wind, his voice is like a still, small voice. But God wants to speak. You should expect him to speak to you. And it's very important. It wasn't one time. God spoke to Peter three times. That's taken from Jewish law. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Don't just get one word. Wait on God until it's confirmed, okay? So you, you hear from God. And then point number three. Circumstances start to align. After you have prayed and continue to pray, my wife told me this morning, and it's so true, she says, there's no formula for how to hear the voice of God. It's not like two plus two equals four. It's not like 64 divided by eight is eight, or, or what's the square root of 144? It's always 12. That's not, when you hear the voice of God, it's not a formula. So you're always praying and you're waiting to hear these words from God, and God will speak to you. God wants to speak to you. And then the circumstances start to align. This is very critical. He uses circumstances for confirmation, not for direction. Don't use circumstances. I've, I've got to take time to tell you my story about just nearly missing God. I came so close to missing God. We did. We had our first home, bought it for 18000 the market was changing. It was now worth 44000 My employer moved to the west side of the city where I got a new job. We lived way far away from, from that. And so we decided God wanted us to buy a new home. So in our search for a new home, we go see this house that we fall in love with on Cardinal Street. Okay, Cardinal Street. We're home. We're praying about it. It's got a huge pool in the backyard. Everything, you know, a young couple would want. It was uh, an a missionary that we know from Mexico visited our home right at that time, sits down in our living room and shows us the gifts he's brought from Mexico, and he pulls a red cardinal out of his packet, 
out of his bag. And we think, whoa, God's speaking to us. Cardinal, that's the right, the right street, you know, and here's the proof of it and all that. Well, the, the short story is, no, that's at the wrong house. It got a contract. It sold. It wasn't our home. See, God, when you buy a house, God knows about your neighbors. He knows about the school system. If the hairs of your head are numbered, if not a sparrow falls without him knowing about it, then it matters to him. Probably does matter to him which car you buy and which house you buy and which. In that particular case, the neighborhood was the issue. We ended up in a neighborhood on the west side of Wichita, Kansas, and we had a revival. Terry was saved. Lisa, Pat, Amy. Brad, Greg, Bob, Kathy, Veda, Larry. All new names written in the Lamb's Book of Life. All because we were in and around that area. Oh, the stories I could tell. It matters. God wants to speak to you. Circumstances are for confirmation, not for direction. And the fourth point is, the Spirit bade me go, nothing doubting. The Holy Spirit... Without hesitation, this is not a mental thing. This is internal in the spirit, okay? You have to learn to know the Holy Spirit. That's just the bottom line for Christians. The Holy Spirit is in you. He's with you. You need to learn the voice of the Spirit, that inner knowing. Your knower will know. I don't know any other way to explain it. Your knower will know. That part of you created in the image of God, which is your spirit within you, not your mind, your spirit within you, your knower will know. And finally, the last point is the evidence of fruit. If you have been praying, if you have been listening and hearing from God, if circumstances are starting to align with you in the direction or the decision or the choices you have to make, if the Spirit gives you assurance so that you have a peace that passes understanding. Wait for that peace. Don't move out until you get that peace. Once you get the peace, it doesn't matter. If you're going into danger, if you're going into uncertainty, if you're going into confusion, if there's fog all around you, if these things are taking place in your life and you have that assurance of the Spirit to go without hesitation and nothing is done, then you can step out in faith. Where do you start out, Brother Jeff? What, what do I do? Well, Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. Just begin. Just start. That's what faith is all about, is just stepping out. And then what will happen is you'll have evidence of fruit. If the worship team would come up, um, it's 16 minutes after by that clock back there. I'm sorry for an extra minute. I told you when I started this morning that um, I really thought, you know, I, I don't think I've preached here for two years. I don't know, maybe more. Um, but I really feel like somebody or several somebodies this morning are in a place of decision making. And it's critical that, that they get it right, that they really do hear from God and don't make a mistake. And... Uh, you have to know that the Lord sent me as a messenger this morning to tell you he cares about that. He hears you. Call on me, and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you don't know, Jeremiah 33.3. 3. God, God hears you. 
He hears your cry and your praying, but don't, don't give up. Be patient and wait. Uh, you can go ahead and start some music in the background. Um, Retta was a beautiful young lady, 21 years of age, called to missions, beautiful voice, sang with our team that traveled around the country uh, from the school. And they ran out of money. She couldn't keep going to school. And uh, she had to go back home and not continue her Bible college education. I lost track of her. I was asked to speak at a convention. And uh, I gave an altar call, and she came forward. She, she was just weeping, weeping, weeping. She said, I feel benched. I'm sidelined. I think God's forgotten me. She said, I'm called to missions. I have a word in me, but I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have any money. And the Lord gave me a word for her, and I spoke two scriptures into her life. Ruth chapter 2, verse 18, Psalm 27, verse 13 and 14. And uh, she accepted it, received it as from God. She goes back home. Within a few weeks, I get a card from her. A musical travel team, a trio or quartet came through town. They were all guys. One of them was single, not married, call missions on his life. The rest is history. She's in Africa as a missionary. It was just a timely word from God to her when she needed it. Let's stand together, shall we? Um, so I want to pray, and then I'm going to let Lindsay close the service. Lord, I've seen tears this morning. I've seen people shaking their head yes. And I know this word is being received by several that are in the balance. They're, they're at a crossroads in their life. They don't know for sure what to do or how to do it or where to go or what your timing is. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name, let this word Give them peace and confidence. Trust you. And then, Lord, come quickly. Speak to them with a vision, with an angel, with a dream, out of a book, out of a sermon. Speak to them. Let them hear the voice of God and fulfill their destiny in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen.